This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poita Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and by Janet Prindle Seidler, Jody and John Arnhold, Cheryl and Philip Milstein family, Judy and Josh Weston, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the JPB Foundation. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. During this past year's reckoning over racial injustice, there's been a push to understand our past more fully as we attempt to build a better future. But this re-examination of our nation's complicated history didn't just start in 2020. It's been going on for some, for some time. For instance, roughly a decade ago, Professor Gloria Brown Marshall started work on what would become her book titled, She Took Justice, the Black Woman, Law, and Power, 1619 to 1969. The book reveals the courage that Black women have demonstrated in the face of overwhelming racial prejudice and gender oppression. Also illustrates how they became leading activists, organizers, lawyers, and judges in their fight for equality. To help us explore the stories of these true American heroes, it's our pleasure to welcome back to Metro Focus, Professor Gloria Brown Marshall, teaches at CUNY's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And she joins us tonight as part of our ongoing Chasing the Dream initiative on poverty, justice, and economic opportunity in America. So, Professor, welcome. Good to have you back again. Thank you. Thank you. Let me start with, with a couple of bigger picture questions for you. And then I do want to focus on some of the stories you tell. The book is so powerful and so compelling and so thought-provoking um, that there are so many marvelous stories. I want to touch on a few of them. But but let me start again with a, a bigger picture question here. And in the book, um, it, it's mentioned that law was the enemy of the Black woman. And then it became her weapon. What do you mean by that, first being the enemy and then becoming the weapon? Well, when you think about the fact that the law was made to enforce the social norms of Black people, people of color, being at the bottom, being workers for life. And so if generally people of color, Africans in particular, are workers for life, then what is the role of the Black woman? Under law, not only did she lack all human rights as a human being um, because she was supposed to be a laborer, but she had none of the dignities, none of the protections that would come with being a woman. So by race and by gender, she was at the bottom of the legal totem pole and law was created time and time again to keep her there, to use her in any way, abuse her in any way that would benefit the common society of whites and at the same time give her none of the protections. And this was religion based and that's what makes it even more diabolical. They said God- How do you mean that? How, how do you mean that, that it was real? Because that might sound odd and strange to people. You know, we like to think our religions are embracing and uplifting. How do you mean when you say that this was religion based? This was, well, the, the when we we look at the, in, in 
um, attack of the African continent by the European, they were given carte blanche by the Pope. And so the Pope said, yes, all these people of color, whether African, Native American, um, Asian, should be the footstool for the European because they are heathens. And so once you're outside of the embrace of God, then you're outside of the embrace of law and outside of the embrace of community and society. And so when you look at these African women, they're women who are at the very lowest point of law's protection. They have no protection. They are property and seen to be under law, um, willing and able as heathens to be used as whatever mechanism is in place for the common society's good. And so that means that she is unable to protect herself or her children, her husband, her family. And so that, that the law was always being used to keep her in her place. I want to ask you about the title of the book, because I, I always find titles fascinating when I talk to authors. When we talk about justice, we tend to think of justice as being this overarching concept and process here. And yet your the title of your book is She Took Justice. Well, why did you decide that that was the appropriate title to use here? Because no one gave the black woman justice. Um, and, and, it's, and it's interesting to me in many ways because people sometimes believe in the last 15, 20 years after the civil rights movement that black women rose up to become who they are today. Um, Kamala Harris as vice president, Michelle Obama, leaders of certain um, Fortune 500 corporations. But black women, if I can say, we always had these attributes. It was looking for the opportunity. And when the opportunity wasn't there, we had to push that forward. We had to demand our place and carve it out. And that meant that we had to take justice because justice was not going to open itself up to us. And we had to make that happen by any means necessary in certain instances. Let's start at the beginning, which is always a good place to start, in the beginning of your book. Uh, you mentioned some historical figures, but you start way back. Here. And, and the first chapter, you introduce us to who was then Princess Nzinga uh, in, in what is now the West African nation of Angola, but was very different, different back then. Tell me what it was about her, that sort of majesty you describe here, and why you decided this was the right jumping off point for you in your stories. I wanted to connect these stories um, so that we can understand the fluidity of history. And, and as a legal historian, I, I enjoy under, helping us to understand that law has played a major role. And so we have this princess in Angola that connects to America because the Africans who arrived in 1619 in the Virginia colony were from Angola. And so Princess Nzinga has watched her father interact with the Portuguese who have now invaded what was Ndongo, renamed it Angola. She's watched her father um, navigate the egos of the tribal men from across this region that some people have said was as large as Connecticut, New York State, and New Jersey. 
And so she's watched this and she's also watched her brother play around with the spear and the sword while she understood how to use the knife. She was trained with this um, because they said she has such a natural ability. So they gave her private lessons in how to be a warrior. And so there were so many African queens that have come over time. There's still African kings and queens to this day. So I said, let me trace her battle against the Portuguese who she fought to try to stop the slave trade. You, you mentioned also, and I think this is fascinating, that, that Africa had a history, a, a long ago history of, of women leaders, black women leaders who were royalty, who were politically adept, who were, were martially adept. They would lead their countries in combat. And, and again, quick question for you, and then I want to get to some stories. Why did, why did you think it was so important to include that, that notion of royalty and leadership historically for Black women in Africa? Because I don't think people really understand, just like they begin the history with slavery, and we should begin the history in Africa. That's the proper place. And properly begin it with our royal people who have fought and those people who have been a part of our history and few people know about them. And Queen Nzinga, of course, is, is think about this. UNESCO even supports this. And that's the law, of course, as you know, is written down. In 1622, she negotiated a peace treaty with the Portuguese. So here she is in this famous story that they had no chair for her and they wanted her to sit on the floor. And she calls over her maid servants and they lend their back and she sits on their backs as she negotiates this peace treaty with the Portuguese. I mean, these amazing stories of women, thought, such dignity. That was fascinating that she basically said, I'm not sitting on the floor in front of you. I'll create my own throne if you will, to deal with them. Let me ask you about it. There's, there's another significant aspect or, or area of the book where you're focusing um, on, and, and that is people who challenge their bondage through the justice system. And there are a number of those stories there. You tell one, and I happen to be a little bit familiar with it, so I was fascinated to see it, um, about a, a woman known as Mumbet, who was an enslaved person in Massachusetts back in the late 1700s. Um, ultimately later became Elizabeth Freeman. But tell us something about Mumbet's story and why you wanted to include it here. Well, Mumbet is working for a very prominent man in Massachusetts, the Ashleys, and they are one of the wealthiest families. He's served in the Revolutionary War. But what, what really um, <laughs> finds, I find this fascinating is relationship between the black woman and the white mistress. Now remember, white women had no real rights either. Their rights came through their husbands, but they would take their anger and their frustration out on these black women who worked in the house. And this woman took her anger out on a Mumbet's little sister and Mumbet stood in the way. And Mumbet then got this horrible burn on her arm from the, the slave mistress, uh, Miss Ashley. And so it was there, Mumbet decides, um, I keep hearing about this Massachusetts constitution that gives you rights and freedoms. Why don't I have any rights and freedoms? So she gets a lawyer and she decides, now she retains a lawyer and we're in 1780. She retains this lawyer and sues for her freedom under the Massachusetts constitution and wins. And wins. And, and I get fascinated by the story. I, I, I visited. I was fascinated by it a number of years ago. I, you and I talked about this. I visited the area. I went to a historical society, did some research on her. I visited her gravesite because I found this to be such a compelling story. As you said, she hears the Massachusetts Constitution being read where it says all people are created free and equal. And she said, 
I guess that should be me. And the fact that she gets a lawyer to represent her was is an astonishing story here. And certainly representative of your title, she took justice, which is what Mumbet did. You know, we mentioned colonial times. And I want to ask you this as a historian and, and somebody who who is who has done research and significant writing on this, because you, you talk in the book uh, about um, several of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, and, and clearly we have that paradox there that we're wrestling with now. We're becoming more aware of it. The idea that, that they were extraordinary characters who crafted a new nation, and yet they were slaveholders. How do you, as a historian, think we should be reconciling these historical figures here, their genius and their frailties and 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 their moral shortages here. How how do we deal with that? I, I think you just said it. I mean, they were fully fledged human beings, so they did have these frailties, and we need to recognize that. I think in this country, there's a very immature way of looking at our history that we can only look at it as this glossed over heroic time period. We can't see any of the bad as, as well as the good. And so this bad part, once we accept it, I think we could mature and grow as a nation. Um, George Washington was a slaveholder and the Pennsylvania law, because the Capitol was located in Pennsylvania during his presidency, had a, had a, a, a part of it under the Quakers that every six months, if a person was enslaved and kept there for six months, then they would be free. He would leave one day before the six month deadline, go back to Virginia and then take all of the slaves with him and then come back and restart the clock. He was doing this every six months. And Oni Judd was one of his slaves, enslaved women there. And she said, it, she was now in the presidency. You must be treated, be, be treated really well. I mean, you're an enslaved woman of the president, George Washington, this beloved figure. She runs away. And now he sends bounty hunters for her. And this makes the, 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 the news because they're saying George Washington not only is a slaveholder, but he won't let this one woman go. He couldn't, his ego couldn't take the fact that Oni Judd left and would not come back. It was like, how dare you not like being a slave in the, in the president's mansion? It's like of <laughs> all places. I mean, how dare you still want freedom? And that's why she took justice, even when people didn't understand that burning light in, inside of a black woman, that she knew she was more than chattel, more than something to be bred, to make the labor force for this country, which was happening in this country. She was more than that. The law might have said she was nothing, but she knew she had something inside of her and she kept that. And that's what made people actually risk all to gain their freedom, even if it meant leaving the home of the president of the United States. You tell so many compelling stories. One very interesting one in New York City, um, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Jenkins. Now, we all know the Rosa Parks story. And I, I, I had the, the privilege of meeting her once before and talking with her before she passed away. Elizabeth Jenkins, um, Jennings, I'm sorry, Elizabeth Jennings involved in a similar case, but a hundred years before Rosa Parks. Tell us about Elizabeth Jennings. In 1854, Manhattan, she's on a streetcar going to church in her Sunday best. And these women and men, white women and men, don't want her on the streetcar. Slavery has ended. She is a free person. There's no slavery in New York. And she's on the streetcar. They demand the conductor remove her because they don't want to ride in the same public transportation as she. And they actually drag her off the streetcar, beat her up, throw her on the floor, I mean, on the ground, tear her Sunday dress, and she sues. 
She, they don't understand. Her brother is a very high level popular minister. She gets a lawyer. She sues and gets damages. Not only does she win, she gets damages for the, the personal insult and the tear to her dress. Talking once again with Professor Gloria Brown Marshall about her book entitled She Took Justice, The Black Woman Law and Power, 1619 to 1969. Um, you, you, you talk about, um, about going to court. And this goes back to, in many ways, the first question that I asked you, you and I talked about, the idea that um, th that that the law was the enemy of Black women and then became a weapon. Um, how did you see that evolution, if you will, where the courts provided no, not only no assistance, but you know, we look at Dred Scott and his wife, where the US Supreme Court, we like to think the Supreme Court, right, this bastion of all wisdom. No, the US Supreme Court says you are property. You, you, you have no rights. You even mentioned in the book that, that even free blacks in most states could not testify in court. They were considered free, but because they were black, they could not testify. So how did you see this evolution then from the courts um, being, being the enemy again to, to the willingness on the part of black women to say, I am going to use, even though I know the obstacles, I am going to get into court and see what I can accomplish there. Well, it was the brilliance of the black woman. That's why I start with Queen and Zynga. They, black women started bringing lawsuits in the 1600s. The idea that we are um, this most litigious nation in the world right now, we've always been litigious. And so this, this idea of using law, it's like, well, if law can oppress me and you tell me we have a court system, then I'm going to use law. Just think about how bold that is to be thought of as property and at the same time say, well, you claim this is your legal system that you then you know, purport to say it's the best system and this is the best country, well, show me. I'm gonna use your legal system against you. I mean, it's just brilliant. And I, and I think of the boldness of these women who said, you know, then you're gonna have to tell me under your laws that I have no rights. And so they would challenge again and again. And these freedom cases, there were hundreds of freedom cases. I have a, a handful, they're representative of the different cases that were brought by black women who said in a tribal court, um, in, these, in these tribunals were tribunals that some of them were allowed in regular court, but mostly it was slave tribunal courts. And these slave tribunal courts, um, they said, well, they took me out of the state. They took me to a free state. And so I should be free, right? And so it's like they would bring these lawsuits and represent themselves. But we also had, and there's always been, white people of good will who then said, I'll take your case. Remember that Mum Bit case needed that white male attorney to actually represent her in court. So there were always people of good will who were white, who were willing to step forward, not as many as we should have had and not as often as it should have taken place. But these, these black women said, even if you don't represent me, if I can't find a lawyer, I'll represent myself. You also talk about the, the women's suffrage movement in, in late 1800s, early 1900s, um, before finally, uh, 1920, I believe it was, the US Supreme Court acted on this. And there were fights within all of the states before this, the move shifted to, let's see if we can do this in the federal system. And, and you focus on the fact that there were a significant number of black women leading the suffrage movement, but there then became conflict with white women 
and the suffering one. Now, they're all looking for the same thing, which is the ability to say we should be able to vote. What, what created that, that, that friction and even indeed conflict between the groups? Well, that goes back to the title, She Took Justice, because you would think that these women would be allies, but white women were not. For the most part, after 1848 in Seneca Falls, when white women and Frederick Douglass met to have this declaration of rights and that they should be equal, these white women turned their backs on black women like Sojourner Truth and so many other black women like Ida B. Wells Barnett and Mary Church Terrell and, and said that this we're going to segregate by race. And then they also played on this issue of lynching saying that these black men are lynching women and are, are lynching, um, are being lynched because they're attacking uh, white women. And so the lynchings that they are taking place, we're going to support those lynchings. And the black women said, you can't support these lynchings because they're, it's untrue. It's not about white women at all. But these white women played on that to get the Southern female support. So I think too often the issues these white women had that they carried forward were issues that were anathema to the black woman's policies, but also the white women had deep racial prejudices that they would use against the black woman to um, keep her out of their organization. So black women created their own organizations. Once again, she took justice by creating her own. If they didn't have the support of, of white women, they would go forward. But remember, there were many black men who did not support black women getting the right to vote. And Booker T. Washington was one of them. And he was the most famous black man at the time. And he did not support um, black women or women generally having the right to vote. So she had to go forward on her own, building her own grassroots organizations and her own um, social justice and social service organizations in her community. Mentioned the notion of, of lynchings, the, the horrific notion of lynchings. Um, and you talk in, in your book, uh, and, and dispel some of the myths around the lynchings doesn't just mean hangings. It's it's the, the term for any extrajudicial killings. And we know that post-Reconstruction into the, the, the 1960s, uh, in all areas of the country, not just the Deep South, certainly most in the Deep South, but there were places such as Indiana that were the hotbed of the KKK. Um, there were some, I saw just some 5,000 documented lynchings in that period. That's documented. As, and, the, and historians believe there, there are thousands more undocumented. Give me a, 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 I've got about four or five minutes here. So I want to do this and then I have another big picture question I want to wrap up with. But give me a sense of some of the notions surrounding these lynchings, especially involving women, black women, that you try to dispel here. Well, one is that it was about um, the assault on a white woman. When we get to the, the, the 19th Amendment, and the um, ability of black women and all women supposedly to vote, you see the attacks on black women, black women were lynched. Um, so we have to get rid of that notion. We have to understand that lynchings were uh, against black men were based in many parts by competition. If a black man opened a store or had a business or had something that was better than the white person, then th this anger would be, how dare you have more than I do? Don't you understand that white people should always have more? And so after the war, World War One, when black men came back home in uniforms, there was an uptick in lynchings. So all these things 
things would happen that had nothing to do with an assault on a white woman. And we also need to know that, you know, white men were wearing blackface at the time. So those assaults on white women could have been by white men in blackface. We don't know, but we do know the result was that black men and women, one of the most famous cases of, of black women being lynched was Mary Turner, who was pregnant and had her fetus cut out of her and they stomped the fetus and hanged her from a bridge. So hang, hang her, hang her for complaining about the fact that they had lynched her, lynched husband, her husband the day before. Let me, let me ask you last question here. I got, got about a minute and a half. Um, you're a historian. You, you, you've done research on this. What did you learn from putting this book together that you hope others will take from it? I learned about tenacity that is don't be ashamed of your tenacity of your boldness as a woman that these women had so little and did so much with it. They lost sometimes many times they lost their lives. They lost their livelihoods. People like Daisy Bates and Fannie Lou Hamer never had the legal or, or uh, life or stability protections that they should have had as as women as as American citizens, but they fought on anyway. I learned from them that you have to keep pushing forward, not just for your generation and yourself, but for future generations, because we stand on the shoulders of those generations of women who fought and they took justice so that we could have justice today. And, and certainly, I said last question, one, one last, last question for you. The importance of us knowing these stories. Why so important? Everyone should know American history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We shouldn't shy away from it, and we should give respect and attribution to the Black woman for what she has been through, for what this country has done for her, for what she has contributed intellectually, as well as physical contributions from the, the labor that she's given to the to intellect that she's given and creativity. She is an amazing example of what a human being is and can be despite all obstacles. And anyone should read these stories and feel that they too can do more with their lives given what these black women faced in opposition and were able to do despite everything. And I, I, I like to, to end with Sojourner Truth who said, if women want more rights than what they got, then they need to just take them and not be talking about it. And that's why she took justice. If you don't get it, then you have to stand up and actually take the justice that you need. Yeah, I love that Sojourner Truth quote you have in the very front of the book. You know, essentially she wants it, she needs to take it. And as you talk about here, she took justice. Once again, it's it's Professor Gloria Brown Marshall, uh, the book entitled, She Took Justice, The Black Woman Law and Power 1619 to 1969. As I mentioned to you in the very beginning, it's, it's such a powerful and compelling book, uh, such a thought-provoking book. Um, in many ways, and and this is intended to be a compliment to you as a researcher and writer, it's a horrifying book in terms of the stories that are contained, stories that we don't know, and certainly as a nation, we need to know. Professor, it's always good to talk with you. I, I'm so glad we were able to get together and do this, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus, the podcast. Also available at wliw.org radio and on the NPR One app.